Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast with lead pastor Don Headley. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We've been teaching through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, if you do the math, you'll figure out that we're somewhere around the 14th chapter, should be in the 15th. I did not finish chapter 14 last week, and so I want to encourage you, grab your Bibles, head over to Mark chapter 14. We're going to finish up chapter 14 and dive a little bit into chapter 15 today, so that's where we're going to be. So head that direction, and I tell you this uh, you know, so often, I don't want you just reading the screen. I want you actually reading your own Bible, underlining, highlighting uh, doing what, what you need to do there, because I believe that when we do that, when we really read it for ourselves, whether it's on the screen or in, in, you know, on the phone or on the Bible, uh, I do believe in that moment what we're doing is we're opening ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. We're just saying, teach me something in this moment. So I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to read, read it for yourself here today. Also, I want to remind you of our Ask Anything down here at the bottom of the screen. If you have questions while I'm going along, please text those to this phone number. And if we have some questions at the end of this message, we'll get the pastors up here and try to answer a few before you head out. So as I dive into this today, I want to tell you kind of the theme that I see through this text and actually through the entire book, is this question, and this is the one I want to pose to you all morning, is who do you say Jesus is? Like, who is Jesus to you? Not not just a general statement of who Jesus is, but who is Jesus to you? And I don't mean just verbally, because I think we can give lip service to Jesus a lot, and we can say, oh yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Savior. But then we walk out of church, and then from, you know, Monday to Saturday, we live like Christ doesn't even exist. And so my question to each of us individually is answering within our own hearts, who is Jesus to you? And I hope that by the time we get to the end of this message today, you'll be able to answer that without a doubt before you leave here today. Now, uh, the reason I bring that up, obviously, as I said, it's the theme of the entire book because we know from the very first week in chapter one, verse one, John Mark, as he's, re- as he's writing the gospel of Mark, tells us straight up front from the very first line why he's doing it. He says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So the whole purpose behind this book, this, this gospel, is to prove to you that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And what we have done over the last few weeks is we have just kind of walked through the book of Mark, we followed the life of Christ, and if you were here last week, you know where we were at in the text. We, we saw Jesus go up into an upper room to celebrate a feast that's been going on for centuries called the Passover with his disciples. But he does something different this time. Their entire life, they've been you know, celebrating the Passover the same way, with the same elements and, and with the same songs and, and with the same cups of wine. And all of a sudden, at the end of this one, Jesus changes it and he takes this Passover and he transforms it into what we call the Lord's Supper, which is communion. And so we took the juice and we took the bread last week in remembrance of what Christ in this text was getting ready to do, but you and I, we have the Bible, we have, you know, the, the history, and so we know what he was talking about, even though those disciples sitting there at the table that night might not have grasped the whole thing they were about to. 
And then they, they go from there. Judas takes off and he goes to betray Jesus. Jesus takes the rest of the disciples and they head down to the garden. They go out the east side of Jerusalem, head down through the Kidron Valley, up the other side into the garden, and they begin to pray. He leaves the, the main group of disciples. He goes a little bit further. He takes three with him, Peter, James, and John. He goes a little bit further himself and he falls to his knees and he prays three different times. Each time he'll come back to the disciples and he'll find them asleep. But his prayer is this. Look, I know what I'm about to do. I know what's being asked of me. And if there's any other way, God, would you please take this cup from me? Let it pass from me. But he would end it every time with not my will, but your will. And and so we find them in the garden and he, he finishes praying for the third time. He comes back to the disciples. And last week, if you were here, we ended in verse 42, where Jesus is speaking to Peter, James, and John. And he says this, up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And so that's where we ended last week. And so I want to pick up in verse 43 where Jesus is betrayed and arrested. So let's dive into this, starting in verse 43. And immediately, even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. Then you can take him away under guard. As soon as they arrived, Judas walked up to Jesus. Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him the kiss. Uh, Judas comes into the garden with a group of soldiers, and we don't know exactly how many. Uh, We know there was a group of temple guards with him that were sent by Caiaphas and the the high council. They were sent with him, but we also believe now that that Pilate may have sent some Roman guards with him as well because they're trying to keep the peace. They want to make sure that this doesn't get out of control because Pilate is apparently aware of all of this because he will try Jesus in the morning. You'll see that in our text today. But in this moment, as they arrive, I believe only Jesus and Judas are the two that know what's about to happen. Everyone else is kind of on the outs. They don't know what's about to happen. And I think it's interesting that if you think back to last week when we talked about the Last Supper and Jesus leaned over and he told Judas, hey, what you're about to do, go do quickly, and Judas leaves. And where did he go? He went back to the temple, right? Because he had already arranged to betray Jesus. That's where he gets these soldiers and they send him back to arrest Jesus. Now, put yourself in Judas's sandals just for a minute. Where would you go once you left the temple? you would go back to the upper room because that's where Jesus was at the last time you saw him. So I believe that they would have gone to the, la- the upper room. They would have gone to the house of John Mark's family and, and they would have in that moment found out that obviously Jesus wasn't there and whether they asked somebody there, hey, can you tell us where Jesus went or Judas after walking with Jesus for three years went, you know what? I know where he likes to go. Like he loves this place in the garden. However he figured it out, they end up turning and they go toward the garden to arrest Jesus. And notice that this question that we're asking this morning, who is Jesus to you, that Judas actually answers this question for us, for himself. Uh, Did you notice this? Look at the very end. It says that uh, as soon as they arrived, Judas Judas walked up to Jesus. What's he say? Rabbi. He doesn't call him Lord. He doesn't call him master. He calls him rabbi, which is this word that means teacher. And, and so this is why I'm asking you today. Judas walked with Jesus for three years and he still only thinks of him as a teacher. So who is Jesus to you? 
Is he just a good teacher? Is he just a good historical figure? Or is he truly the Messiah? Uh, I think it's interesting that his hypocrisy knows no bounds. He just walks up in the middle of all this and calls him teacher. And then he gives him, it says, the kiss. And the word that's in the original text there actually means that he kissed him profusely. I don't know, maybe a couple times on each cheek. I don't know. But, but the idea is, hey, wink, wink, right? This is the signal. I don't want you to miss it. Here we are in the middle of the night in the dark. We've got all these soldiers. And it says in the text, a crowd, which I think by the time they went to the upper room and then turned and went all the way back down across the city out the east side, that there would be a group of people following going, what is going on? What's happening here? I want to see. And so you've got all these people walking through the garden, torches. You can hear the swords. You can hear the shields. And here they come. And so Judas is trying to make sure that they don't miss the signal. And so he begins to kiss Jesus so that everyone would know this is who I am betraying. It's, I think it's very interesting. This is like the height of hypocrisy to me, that he's just kissing him on the cheek. He's, He's making nice, even though he knows in his heart that he's betraying Jesus. And I think for many of us, this epitomizes our rejection of Jesus as well. Many of us, we we call ourselves Christians and we kiss Jesus on Sunday mornings and we mark that box and then from Monday to Saturday, it's like he doesn't exist. And so I think we can relate to Judas, unfortunately, too often. It goes on in verse, verse 46, then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him, but one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Uh, It's incredible when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you start to compare all these stories together, a lot of these little details start to come up. It's it's so interesting that in this moment, um, the disciples are ready to fight for Jesus, at least Peter. And they're outnumbered. Some scholars say, you know, close to 60 to 1, they're outnumbered, and yet Jesus is standing there and they're getting ready to arrest him. Judas comes up and kisses him. And um, we got Peter, of all people, that draws a sword and takes a swing. Now, why in the world would he do that if they're so outnumbered? Well, I think they're still in that mindset that Jesus is the Messiah, an earthly ruler who's going to overthrow Rome, and they've seen him calm the storm. Just a few days ago, they saw him clear out the temple. And Peter's probably thinking, look, I don't care what the odds are. We've got Jesus on our side, and we're going to win this thing. Now, the problem with Peter's thinking is that he thought Jesus was on his side instead of him being on Jesus' side. He got it backwards. Peter pulls out his sword, which is probably more like a butcher knife, and he takes a swing trying to give this guy a haircut at the collarbone. And, And... Maybe it's because he was a fisherman and not a soldier and didn't know how to handle it. Or maybe it was because he saw it coming and he ducked. But he ends up cutting off the ear of a guy by the name of uh, Malchus. We get that from the book of John. He actually names the person. He was actually a servant of the high priest. Luke goes into a little more detail and says, in this moment, Jesus steps forward and shuts this whole thing down and actually reaches up and heals the man's ear. Like as quickly as it was cut off, Jesus restores his ear. And Matthew says that in this moment, he turns and he says to Peter, put your sword back in its place. And then he makes a great statement. He says, look, um, don't you think that if I asked my heavenly father that he would send to me more than 12 legions of angels at my disposal? Which is an amazing statement, by the way. Because if you do the math, that's over 72,000 angels 
And Jesus is looking at this guy standing there holding a butcher knife that just cut off an ear, and he's like, hey, don't you understand? Like, I I could have my heavenly father send me over 72,000 angels to protect me. And you think you're going to help with that little butcher knife, right? And if you don't know anything about angels, just go to Isaiah 37, and you'll read about one angel in the middle of the night that slaughters 185,000 soldiers by himself. And Jesus is saying, I could have over 72,000 of them here just like that. Um, I think so often this same scenario plays out in our life today. People will criticize the church or Christianity or our faith or or say something about Jesus and we get all riled up, right? We get our, our feathers ruffled up and we think that we have to defend Jesus. And in the moment of trying to defend the faith or defend Jesus, we end up harming the cause of Christ more than helping. Can I just tell you this? Whether it's on social media or in person, please stop. Jesus doesn't need your protection. You know what he wants? He wants your love and he wants your obedience. That's what he wants. Jesus steps into this mess in verse 48. And it says, Jesus asked them, am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there among you teaching every day, but these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about me. Jesus ends this battle before it becomes a war. And, and by his statement, he's showing Judas and his disciples, look, I know exactly what's happening. Like, this doesn't surprise me. And oh, by the way, I've got this handle that's under my control. Hey, he goes on to make this middle statement so that the, the religious leaders that are standing there would understand that he knows exactly what they're doing. Like, you didn't arrest me in the temple. I was there every day. You were afraid of the crowds. You were afraid of a riot. You were afraid the people were going to turn on you. You didn't have the guts to arrest me there. And so here you are operating under the cover of darkness. Jesus is letting them all know that he is the one in control of this situation, even though they all think they are. And he shows them that they're not in charge when he says this last line here. But these things are happening to fulfill what the scriptures say about who? Me. Jesus. And talk about a statement. Remember all the prophecies you've grown up with, all the scriptures that you've heard? This is about me. If you ever want to know whether he was admitting to being the Messiah or not, man, right here, he just tells them all. It all was about me. And the narrative continues in verse 50. It says, then all his disciples deserted him, deserted him and ran away. One young man following behind was clothed only in a long linen shirt. When the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. When the disciples, I think for perhaps the first time, realized that Jesus wasn't there to establish an earthly kingdom, they realized that, that this kingdom that Jesus had been talking about all along was not going to be established by swords and by shields. I think in that moment, they freaked out. They didn't know what else to do. They ran off. And it's not so much that they were ashamed of Jesus. It wasn't that they were afraid to die for him because we know that will eventually happen. I I think it's just the fact that they realized that this was going to be an internal spiritual kingdom and it was going to be a a spiritual battle and they didn't know how to fight that. If, If it was with swords and shields, they would gladly pick that up. But when it turned to spiritual things, they had no clue. And so what they do, they ran away instead. And I I just love the details in scripture, don't you? Because we got a naked dude right here. Right? Like, why is that in there in the first place? It just seems so out of place. But, but honestly, we're given a lot of information there. 
because we know that these outer garments were usually wool, and the fact that it's spelled out as a linen garment, it was a very, very expensive material only worn by the rich. So it was somebody who was wealthy. And most scholars believe that it's actually John Mark, our author. That's who was wearing this linen cover. And it fits his MO, too, because it's a rather insignificant detail if you and I are just reading this, and it would be very insignificant unless it was you, right? Then all of a sudden, that becomes a very, very big deal. And I think that's one of the reasons why John Mark writes it in there. And just if I can let my sanctified imagination run wild just for a minute. If you think through the scenario and how the story is unfolding, Judas leaves the Last Supper. The Last Supper is in the upper room at John Mark's family's home. He goes back to the temple. He grabs the guards. He goes back to the upper room. And Jesus has already left. He's taken his disciples. They've gone clear to the other side of the city. They're down in the garden praying. And maybe John Mark has already gotten ready for bed. He's in bed and comes a bang on the door. And he's got to get up. And so he puts on something. He's got this linen thing. He throws it on. He walks to the door. And Judas is there going, hey, where's Jesus at? Uh, I don't know. They said something about going to the garden. And so they turn. Judas and the soldiers and all these people that are following to find out what's going on, they go. And maybe in that moment, John Mark thinks, I got to get to the garden. And he takes off running. Maybe it was to warn Jesus. Maybe it was just to watch and see what was going to happen. But what ends up happening is he gets caught in a rather compromising situation, doesn't he? And ends up having to run off naked. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but just taking the text and trying to make some sense of it, I think it's fascinating that we're given these details in Scripture. But what we do know is that Jesus is arrested. He's hauled off and he's put on trial. Not just one trial, but six trials. If you compare all the Gospels together, you'll find out that he went through three Jewish trials and then three Roman trials all in the same night. He went to Annas and then he went to Caiaphas and then they passed him off to the high council or the Sanhedrin. And then they would eventually pass him off to Pilate. Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with him, so he'd send him to Herod and Herod would send him back to Pilate. And so this is all happening in one night. And what we read next plays out almost like a soap opera. It goes back and forth between Jesus on trial and Peter out in the courtyard trying to get a glimpse, trying to figure out what's happening, but also being put on trial himself. Take a look at this in verse 53. It says, They took Jesus to the high priest's home where the leading priests and elders and teachers of religious law had gathered. Oh, let me ask, just add this. If you ever wonder if this wasn't... uh, premeditated, just read that verse. Meanwhile, Jesus followed him at a distance and went right into the high priest's courtyard. There he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke against him, but they contradicted each other. Finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another made without human hands. But even then, they didn't get their story straight. Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? I think it's fascinating as we read this story that they accused Jesus of threatening to, to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, which was their most highly pl- uh, holy place. It was, it was celebrated. It was the center of all their, their Jewish faith. And, and they say that Jesus 
said he was going to tear down the temple and build it back up in three days. This is the accusation that they're making against Jesus, and it's interesting because it was something that he said three years earlier. They're having to go back that far and try to drag something up, and it's not even what he said. Technically, what he said was, if you destroy it, take a look at this, it's found in John chapter 2. It says, all right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What they exclaimed, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days, but when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own what? His own body. He was talking about his own body. Three years earlier, you're going to destroy this temple, and I'm going to bring it back in three days. What's he talking about? The death and resurrection, yeah. And what I find fascinating is the thing that they're accusing Jesus of is the exact thing that they're about to do. They're about to crucify him and put him in a tomb and three days later, he's gonna come back. But see, Jesus did all of this so that he might come and, and be the ransom for many. He might save us from our sins. He didn't come to defend himself. Look at verse 61. But Jesus was silent and made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they all cried. He deserves to die. Then some of them began to spit at him. And they blindfolded him and beat him with their fists. Prophesy to us, they jeered. And the guards slapped him as they took him away. It's interesting the question that Caiaphas asked him straight up is, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? What has John Mark in his gospel been trying to prove to us all along? That Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. Chapter one, verse one, right? Um, You remember all along for the last 13 chapters, Every time we'd get to a place where Jesus would be asked whether he was the Messiah or he'd reveal it or, or he would do some miraculous healing or some, he'd cast out demons. Remember, he would tell everybody, look, don't say anything. Don't tell anybody. Don't go tell anyone. Do you remember why he did that? Oh, you guys are awesome. It wasn't his time. Over and over again, right? But what's interesting is now we get to this place. Caiaphas asks him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? What does he say? I am. Why would he say I am? Because it's his time. It's the reverse now. It's his time. Remember when he was in the garden and he was telling um, the disciples in in, um, verse 41, he says, look, um, the time has come. It's time. And Caiaphas asked him straight up, are you the Messiah, son of the blessed one? And Caiaphas gets more than what he was bargaining for. Not only does he get an I am, But Jesus goes off to quote prophecy from Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. Uh, It's prophecy about sitting at the right hand of God as the Son of Man and that he would be coming on the clouds of heaven. This is all messianic prophecy and it's this idea that yes, I am the Messiah and I'm gonna fulfill these things. And by the way, those things will be fulfilled someday when Jesus comes back again. Right on? See, this answer sends Caiaphas into a fit, into a rage. He tears his clothes, very dramatic, right? To show his horror, the horror of it. And he rips his clothes. And this is a very Jewish thing to do. 
to rid yourself, to say, I don't want any part of this. And, and what's interesting is he's doing all this, but inside he's actually cheering because he finally got what he's been looking for, an excuse to kill Jesus. And why? What's he call it? He calls it blasphemy. Blasphemy, uh, blasphemy is just reviling yourself. Um, I'm sorry, reviling God, either lifting yourself to the level of God or lowering God to yourself. That's all blasphemy is. And for any one of us to do it, it would be blasphemy. Why? Because we're not God. But for God to do it, for Jesus himself to do it, God in flesh, it's not blasphemy, is it? No, he's speaking the truth. That's why the answer to the question, who is Jesus to you, makes all the difference in the world. Meanwhile, outside in the court, this is what's happening. Verse 66. It says, meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, you are one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. Just then, a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling others, this man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you are a Galilean. Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he broke down and he wept. Now, although Peter ran from the garden, he didn't go far. I don't know if he was like sneaking through the shadows, staying on the outskirts, but he followed them all the way back to Caiaphas' house. And he finds himself in this courtyard. He's warming himself by a charcoal fire is what we're told in scripture. And as he's warming himself on this orange glow, this, this little servant girl recognizes him. And once confronted, Peter tries to play it off. Look, I don't know what you're talking about. First denial. This great apostle, this big, burly, manly fisherman is intimidated by a young servant girl. And she won't let it go. She stays at him and, and she comes over and she takes a better look at him at the, the doorway and then she goes back and she starts talking to others and, and Peter's like, great, this little brat's starting to raise suspicion at everybody else, what am I gonna do about this? And, and they're thinking, he's definitely one of those. He's definitely one and, and he denies it a second time. And, and Peter doesn't wanna leave. He's trying to figure out what's going on with Jesus. I don't know if he's just trying to find out what's happening or if he thinks he can sneak in and try to, to help Jesus escape. I don't know what he's doing, but he's staying there. But in this moment, he's starting to realize that he's gotta save his own skin as well. And now all these other people are becoming very suspicious. And what gives Peter away, and this is fascinating, is not his face, it's his accent. They know they got a hillbilly from the northern country. And they're like, he's from the area Jesus is from. So he's got to be one of the disciples. And this time, Peter tries to leave no doubt. He denies it with as much force as he can. And essentially what he does is he swears on penalty of hell that he doesn't know Jesus. And that's when the rooster crows the second time and he snaps back to reality and he remembers what Jesus said. And it says that he breaks down and he weeps. Why does he break down and weep? If you were here last week, you know the answer to that. Because Jesus had predicted this early on, but this is what Peter said in verse 29. Even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. 
And yet in this moment, that's exactly what he did. Uh, Let me ask you, do you think that Peter denied Christ three times because he didn't have enough faith? Do you think he did it because he didn't love Jesus enough? Do you think that's why? No, I I don't think so at all. I think what's happening in this moment is, is everything's coming unraveled. They thought Jesus was an earthly leader and now he's under arrest and they're, they're accusing him and they're beating him and he's out in the, the, the yard and he's being accused and, and being told that he's a disciple of Jesus Christ and he finds himself in this place where he's losing hope and he doesn't know what else to do. You can't ever question his passion for Jesus. You can't. Because eventually Peter will make good on his promise to follow Jesus into martyrdom. Uh, We know from tradition that he's crucified by Nero in AD 68. Peter didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus, and so he asked to be crucified upside down, and Nero grants his request, and he would eventually give his life for Christ. But back inside the house, Jesus' trial is still going on as we start chapter 15. It says, very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, the entire high council, met to discuss their next step. They bound Jesus, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? He replied, you have said it. Then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes. And Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. It says the entire high council. And what this is, it's the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin in this Jewish culture in the first century would be the equivalent of like our Supreme Court here in the United States. They decide everything. And there's 70 members and they bring Jesus in front of all these members and they begin to put him on trial. And they decide that Jesus is deserving of death. Um, For saying what? For saying that he's the Messiah. That he is the God, the, the God that has been prophesied about to come, the savior of the world. And it's an irony because the Sanhedrin finally procures the evidence needed to condemn Jesus to death. And yet it's also the same evidence that they needed to believe in him. This is why this question, who is Jesus to you, is so important. Because you either get to a place where you accept him or you deny him based upon your answer. And see, by condemning Jesus to death, the Sanhedrin condemned itself to ultimate unbelief. Now, every person in this room, yes, you, I know you don't think I'm talking to you, but I am. Every single one of us has to answer the question, who is Jesus to you? And the answer is not just important for this life, but also for the next Uh, One of the greatest Christian minds of our time, C.S. Lewis, said that every person has to answer this question, and they have one of three answers. You only have three possibilities. After you read through the scriptures and you see what Jesus said, you either have to write him off as a lunatic, like he's crazy for ever saying something like that, or he's a sane person, but he's a liar. That's your second option. Or he's telling the truth and he's Lord. And C.S. Lewis says, you have to pick one of those three. He's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. Now in this moment, the Sanhedrin decided that he's a lunatic, he's a liar, and he needed to be put to death. But what's interesting is they could proclaim a death sentence, but they couldn't execute it. 
that would have to come from Pilate. And so Jesus had to be handed over to Pilate. Uh, I, I love the fact that Pilate is in Jerusalem during this moment because he didn't live in Jerusalem. Pilate actually lived on, in Caesarea, right on the coast. If you ever go to Israel with us, you get to see the area. It's beautiful, right there on the Mediterranean Sea. And yet we find Pilate in Jerusalem. Why would Pilate be in Jerusalem all the way from Caesarea? Well, because he's the governor. He's got to maintain order. And so if all of the Jews are making their, their pilgrimage and you're going to have almost a million Jews in Jerusalem, where do you think he would be? He's going to make sure that he's there, that there's a large Roman force and that he's maintaining order and that nothing gets out of control because he wants to keep his position. And we find him right there in Jerusalem. Now, according to the Gospels, Pilate will try Jesus and he can't find anything wrong with him. He'll send him to Herod. And then Herod can't find anything wrong with him. He'll send him back to Pilate. The bottom line is they think he's innocent. And Pilate knows now, and you're going to see it in the text as we read it, that the Pharisees are jealous of Jesus. They're just railroading him. So he tries to devise this very clever way of releasing Jesus because he believes he's innocent. It starts in verse 6. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people requested. One of the prisoners at the time was Barabbas, a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release to you this king of the Jews, Pilate asked, for he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. It's Pilate's job to know what's happening in his region, to maintain order of all the Jewish people under Roman rule. And one thing that Pilate knows is that the crowd loves Jesus. He's just watched him in this triumphal entry enter into Jerusalem. And so he devises this plan. Look, if I can put Jesus up there and put up somebody who is a horrible person, they gotta let Jesus go. This is, this is what he's thinking. And so he gives them a choice. Look, you can choose Jesus or you can choose Barabbas. And what do they choose? They choose Barabbas. Why? Because they've been incited by all the religious leaders. Now, uh, Barabbas is actually, um, he is described in scripture in two different places. We find him in Luke chapter 23. He's described as a murderer and an insurrectionist or a revolutionary. He's also described in John chapter 18 as a robber. Now, just as an interesting side fact, I've got to ask the question. Barabbas um, is a robber as well. And I think that the, the, if you think through it, Jesus is crucified with criminals on both sides, and both of those men are referred to as robbers as well. And I think it's entirely possible that they were partners of Barabbas. Like all three of them were scheduled to be crucified that day. And if that's true, then Jesus would have taken Barabbas' place on the cross between the other two criminals. Now the crowd is stirred up by the, re the religious leaders and they continue to cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And I think this must have surprised Pilate because I'm sure he thought this plan was going to work. They were shouting for Jesus on Sunday and yet fast forward to Friday and now they're shouting against Jesus and Pilate wasn't planning on that. 
So if you're Pilate, what do you do? How do you handle the situation? You know what Pilate did? Verse 15. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Matthew, in this account, gives us a little more detail. He says that uh, Pilate is so frustrated by the whole situation that he does something very interesting. He has a basin of water brought and he washes his hands to symbolically say, look, the blood is of this man, this innocent man, is not going to be on my hands. And, and what's interesting about that is that's not a Roman custom. That's a Jewish custom. And you have Pilate up there washing his hands in front of all these Jewish people. And he says, the blood of this man is not going to be on me. And you know what the crowd responds with? Let it be on us and our children. That's how much they were worked up in this moment. But yet, it's interesting. Pilate could have stepped in and done something, and he doesn't. To pacify the crowd. How often do we do that in our own walk? How often do, do we do that in our integrity? Instead of doing what was right, we pacify the crowd. Um, to save his own political career, Pilate turns Jesus over to be crucified. And it's a horrible exchange because it's a, it's a political career that's only going to last three more years because he's going to be banished by the emperor at the end of three years. What a horrible trade. And as feeble as that sounds, many of us, I think, betray Jesus for a lot less, don't we? We'll trade him for a boy or for a girl. We'll trade our, our faith and our integrity for a title or more money. And so before we start pointing fingers at Pilate, I think we really need to take a look at it and realize that we're more like him than we like to admit. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Is he really the Messiah? Is he who he says he is? Is he just a good teacher? Is he just a good historical figure for us to study? Who is Jesus? And what would your life say about that? I pray that you're getting to a place where you can say like John Mark did, that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Now, I don't want you to miss next week because we're going to pick up where this left off and we're going to take a look at the crucifixion and the death and burial of Jesus. I hope that you'll come back and that you'll bring friends with you as well. But I, I want to pray that this week, that it would be different, that our lives would answer the question, who is Jesus to us? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now as uh, your disciples, Lord. We, we declare in this moment, that you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. And Lord, I pray that you would just move in our hearts and minds. Lord, for some of us that have maybe uh, not made that decision, I pray today we would make it, that we would receive you as our Lord and Savior. Lord, for those who have been declaring it and they haven't been living it, I pray today would change that this week that they would draw closer to you, that they would foster that up relationship. And Lord, I just pray for continued strength as we try to live out lives that are worthy of the calling in a world that seems like it's going crazy sometimes. Lord, would you give us the strength to be able to do that? God, I just pray that in all these things that everything we do and say just glorifies the name of Jesus Christ. We pray this in that name and all God's people agreed and said, amen.